season. Um, it goes perfectly with the message that we're going to look at tonight. You can turn there if you would, 2 Samuel chapter 11. But please be praying for Pastor Ken. I know you guys so badly wanted him to be behind the pulpit tonight. I don't blame you. And I know the young adults were hoping that he'd be speaking on Friday night. Um, but uh, I, I am privileged to be filling in. I'm grateful that Pastor Zach would call and ask me to do so. Uh, we got the call late last night. We made it official this morning. So we booked our, our, our flight, drove two hours south to Boston, got on a one-way uh, airplane. So in the midst of all that, my wife and I have twins. They're four and a half years old, Avner and his sister Marley. And uh, my four and a half year old daughter trying to process this last minute trip of ours, uh, you know, inside her precious little mind, she asked my wife before we left this morning, she said, mommy, why are you going to Urami? And I, I believe, you know, she realized the amusement that was glaring back at her from from her parents, she says, wait, is it Urami or Miami? And all we could say is, it is it's been a difficult couple years for pronouns, hasn't it? And uh, <laughs> it was a cute moment. If you had to title the message tonight, as we're going to look here at a well-known portion of Bible, if you are a note taker, the title of the message would be The Sin of Complacency. Complacency. And, uh, you know, what I just mentioned about what's happening with that gentleman up at Calvary Chapel, Bangor, that's one of a million examples we could come up with, and certainly our own life, our own walk with Christ. And as we look at this portion of Scripture this evening, I'd ask you guys to allow the Spirit of God to challenge us together. I, I believe this may be a bit of an exhortative message. Um, but I pray all of us would be challenged and, and be willing to accept what it is that the Spirit of God wants to speak to us tonight. Let's read the text. We're going to look at just the first five verses here of 2 Samuel 11. Verse 1, it says, It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel... And they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, Is this not Bathsheba? the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. For she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. And verse 5, and the woman conceived. So she sent and told David and said, I am with child. Pray with me. Lord, I humbly ask that you would minister through your word tonight. Lord, nothing is a surprise to you, including the gathering here and myself being the teacher. Lord, ultimately we look to you and your word and we ask that you would minister to each and to every one of us. I pray, Lord, we'd be able to hear what the Spirit of God is saying. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It does seem appropriate this evening that you and I would consider what I believe to be this very pivotal moment in the life of a king. 
In my opinion, as you look at the legacy of this man, you consider David, it would seem to me that in congruence with his name, you think of either one or two other names. You think of either David and Goliath, or you think of David and Bathsheba. With the first, we have one of the most famous feats of faith contained with all the Bible. Every child grows up hearing the story of David and Goliath. And yet, on the other hand, we have this fleshly failure of a man that truly sobers the mind of every reader who encounters this story. David and Bathsheba is incredibly tragic. What compounds the heartache surrounding David and this woman is that through the scriptures up until this point, chronologically, there's so much we learn. We learn about the calling of David, of course, by God himself. We learn through the scriptures about the conviction of David. Remember, it tells us he was a man after God's own heart. We understand the capability of David, that lions and bears and entire armies would fall prey to his leadership and to the mighty skills God had given him. We learn in 2 Samuel 5 about the commission of David. The Bible tells us there in 2 Samuel 5 verse 12, David knew the Lord had established him as king over Israel, that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people. He was a shepherd. God put him there. However, here in 2 Samuel chapter 11, we encounter the complacency of David. How tragic it is. Webster's 1828, that dictionary in the Old English, it defines the word complacency this way. It says, the unawareness of actual danger. Let me say that again. Complacency, defined by Webster's 1828 dictionary, the unawareness of actual danger. Uh, Proverbs, his son Solomon will tell us in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 32, for the turning away of the simple will slay them, and it's the complacency of fools which will destroy them. Uh, A.W. Tozer said it so succinctly. A.W. Tozer said, complacency is the deadly enemy of spiritual progress. The complacent soul is the stagnant soul. And so you think about David, and you think about our walk as Christians all throughout the New Testament, it is no secret that this book that you and I have opened before us, the Holy Scripture, we are no doubt all in agreement that this book calls you and I to a fight. It calls us to a battle. Uh, Paul writes to young pastor Timothy, 2 Timothy 2, he says, you must endure hardship as a good soldier. We read, of course, well-known Paul in Ephesians 6, put on the whole armor of God to he says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but rulers, powers, and principalities. Paul writes to the Corinthian church. He says, we don't war in the flesh, but we war by the Spirit. I mean, you look at all these verses, and, and certainly God calls us, men and women, young and old. doesn't matter our gifts or our capabilities. God calls us to a fight. Complacency is the enemy of it. For men in the hearing this evening, or women who have served in the military, or those who have served in uh, law enforcement. I'm familiar that Calvary Chapel Miami has a long history with chaplaincy and law enforcement. I'm sure many in the room have served to some degree or another. If that is your background or someone in your family has served, you, you probably recognize the term operational readiness. 
Operational readiness. It's defined by the military this way. The ability to respond to a conflict, including training, preparation, resources available to engage uh, the enemy. Now, hopefully, you're, you're already beginning to sense the crossover for our spiritual life, and more importantly, for the man David. One Bible commentator said it this way concerning this portion of text. He said this, Had David's attention been where God wanted it to be, then he never would have put it where God didn't want it to be. While Joab is laying siege to Ammon, Satan is laying siege to David here in 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're looking at a man who with all the feats and with all the favor and with all the blessings and with all the skill and a man who was called, who had capabilities, who had conviction, who had been commissioned, and yet we have this unedited version of complacency and all of the turmoil that will follow from it. If you look again at verse 1, it happened in the spring... At that time, when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. There's that fateful conjunction, but. The Scottish theologian G. Campbell Morgan said, in the whole of the Old Testament literature, there is no chapter more tragic or full of solemn warning than this, because the simple reading, or I guess you could say the translation of that first verse in our common vernacular, says, There is a time when kings go out to battle, but this king stayed home. Isn't that tragic? There's a time, I mean, we think of springtime, we think of uh, spring training, uh, baseball, back where I'm from, trout fishing. In the biblical time, springtime meant war. It was a time where the weather was so conducive. That it was time to go, and David had proven for most of his life. He knew this. But the devastation that transpires next is going to be traced all the way back to this moment here. The sin with Bathsheba is severe, but listen, I don't believe it's sudden. It's traced back. And even as you look at just this one little conjunction in verse 1, but David, he remained there in Jerusalem. Think about the culture we find ourselves in here this evening. I mean, you think about all that's happening around us. Uh, you know, I don't know what your news app may be. Uh, you look at, let's say, since 2020 and some of the headlines that we've seen. I mean, there's hyperinflation, there's COVID frustration, there's government intimidation, there's angry demonstrations, made-up insurrections, progressive invasion, LGBT perversion, failed overdose prevention, medical coercion, freedoms cancellation, Biden's incomprehension, Putin's aggression, violent crime escalation, this pre- and pro-Marxist education, open-door immigration, woke church congregation, Bethel Hillsong, and elevation, and a, post, <laughs> a post-Christian nation in our history. Forgive me, I, I do like alliteration. But you look around the news, and you look at what's happening in the world today, and you're thinking, we're in a dire situation. And you think about, likewise, men or women today, if we would actually take our rightful position as the, the salt and light, men, spiritual leaders of our homes, uh, Christians, if we would actually be the influence that God has called his bride to be, we think about how much of the turmoil we are seeing around us would not exist. 
I believe we must be who God has called us to be, and we must be where God has called us to be. But here in verse 1, we see Joab is in the vanguard. That's a term for front line. And yet the king is in the rear guard. He's not where he's supposed to be. Very interesting. Appealing to you of the military or law enforcement background once again. If you've heard the term to be in the rear with the gear, you know that's a sentiment that you don't really want to be part of. To be in the rear with the gear. You kind of get this picture of everyone else is off doing the hard work, maybe, you know, blood, sweat, and tears, fighting battles, and you're like in the back, hiding with a Snuggie, sucking your thumb. It's like, it's not where God, you don't want to be in the rear with the gear. And yet here's David in the rear with the gear. And his, his general, his army, his men, people who have for a long time esteemed him are off doing in the springtime what kings are supposed to be doing, and yet not this man. Very difficult. And whether right or wrong, the assumption as we look at this is David has this complacency. It's not where he belonged. And think about through the Old Testament, because there's so much text given concerning this man. Let's just like a brief snapshot, proving the point that David shouldn't have been here. Think about what we read. Like in 1 Samuel 17, uh, 17 David fights against Goliath. 1 Samuel 18, David is given a high rank in Saul's army. 1 Samuel 18, verse 13, David is given charge over a thousand men. 1 Samuel 22, David gathers a ragtag group of malcontents and then leads them to victory. 1 Samuel 23, David attacks the Philistines, saves the city of Keilah. We see in 1 Samuel 27, David and his men conduct raids against the Kenites and the Jerahmeelites. 1 Samuel 30, David defeats the Amalekites. 2 Samuel chapter 5, David becomes the king of Israel. He conquers the Jebusites. He then conquers the city of Jerusalem. 2 Samuel chapter 8, he conducts battle against the Philistines, the Moabites, the Syrians, the Edomites, and he wins. You guys get my point? This guy, God has given him the promise, if you obey me, I will give you victory. And all of that has been happening. David belonged amongst the soldiers on the battlefield. And likewise, brothers and sisters, you and I belong on the battlefield. And and as we get into this, we should be asking the question, what does that look like for my life? Where has God called me to serve? Certainly, we don't want to be fans. The problem with fans is they're, well, they're cold-weather fans. We become critics if we're just up in the bleachers, and we criticize. And God calls us to get down on the playing field. Certainly, I believe, as we understand this contrast between Joab and we look at where he was versus where David was, that that term I made mention of, the the vanguard, the front lines. If you were to look up that uh, definition in a military dictionary, very interesting, it tells us that the vanguard, and this is where I believe God calls all of us to be, spiritually speaking, vanguard is defined as an area of potential conflict and struggle. Isn't that unique? It's kind of like what the Son of God says, you want to follow me? There's a struggle that follows. You, you know, you got to pick up your cross and daily die to yourself. Crucify your flesh. He says, listen, in this world there's going to be tribulation. They're going to hate you. Well, they hated me first. The Apostle Paul writes to young pastor Timothy. He says, all who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. And, and you know, that's not one of the tattoos that we love to get on our arm or we hang on the refrigerator, but it's a promise. 
There's a struggle that God calls us to his children. David knew that. And at the same time, our flesh does everything it can to avoid the spiritual place of conflict. Our flesh does, doesn't it? That's not what our flesh desires. The Bible tells us the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit lusts against the flesh. So in a very real sense, that warm snuggie while sucking our thumb, in a very real sense, it's appealing to our flesh. But that's not where God calls us. He doesn't call us to a place of apathy or complacency or compromise. Consider, as we're looking here with David, consider the own culture that you find yourself growing up in. You know, I'm a Maine guy through and through. I married a Tennessee gal, but I'm a Maine guy. And one of the things that I will say about the Maine culture is Maine men, Maine women, it's a unique bunch, but it's a tough bunch. You know, we're the type of people that in the middle of winter, end of November, when down here is just getting beautiful, we're having blizzards, snowstorms. That's the best time to go deer hunting. And so, you know, you got men and women who will go stalking whitetail in the wildest weather conditions. You got men who will haul lobster traps and gale force winds, and they'll do so having the time of their lives. But to open their Bibles to their wives or children, or to serve in the kids' ministry, or to go consistently to church to do things that uh, God calls us to, it's frightening to so many. Very interesting. And listen, you know, maybe you're here, maybe uh, if there's a skeptic watching, they're thinking, well, you know, Travis, lighten up a bit. I mean, if I were to simply avoid the spiritual fight altogether, won't it eventually just subside after a while? I mean, someone else is gonna pick it up and, you know, I mean, can't, can I just allow someone else to do what God's called me to do? I mean, there's enough Christians in the world or in the community or in the state or whatever. And sure, you look around, you're thinking, okay, there's drag shows in the schoolhouses, there's denial of gender in the classrooms, there's drug overdoses all around us, there's divorce rates skyrocketing, and there's devil clubs in the after-school programs, there's dirty sites filling the online world, there's division in our homes, depravity in our cultures. We're looking around and we're seeing all that's happening And certainly, I believe there are too many in the church house who seemingly have no concept of what it means to follow Christ and to actually take a stand and get involved on the battlefield. You think about in the days of what was the second great awakening of this wonderful nation, Charles Finney. You guys know upstate New York, what spread across to New England. Charles Finney, concerning a very um, sensitive subject, slavery at the time, Charles Finney said something that I think is so profound. He said, revivals are hindered when ministers take the wrong stand on questions involving human rights. The church cannot turn away from the issue. Silence upon the subject is virtually saying that the subject is not a sin. Now, the good news is I'm preaching to family, Calvary Chapel. This isn't something that we really deal with. Uh, You guys have a pastor And we belong to a movement that has consistently gone through the Bible, not shied away from difficult issues, because as you teach the Bible, it addresses every area of our culture. You guys agree with me, and we're so grateful. I'm grateful to be part of this family with you guys. I don't know where I'd be if God in his sovereignty didn't place this man who was formerly strung out on heroin into a discipleship program at Calvary Chapel. Allow the word of God to deal with every issue, even difficult issues in my life. Grateful for that. At the same time, there is a reality, and some of you have maybe been to Washington, D.C. Some of you have maybe visited the uh, Museum of the Bible. 
And there at the Museum of the Bible, you can go in and there is a display, what is the 1807 Slave Bible. It, of course, didn't have that on its cover, but history has now uh, identified this as the Slave Bible because out of England and London and during the East Indies slave trade, there were men who wanted to take parts of the Bible out yet keep parts of the Bible in. I mean, they wanted the part of the Bible that said, slaves obey your master. That was good for them. But they wanted the whole part of the Exodus and God you know, delivering people from slavery. We gotta take that out. So you can actually go to the Museum of the Bible today in Washington, D.C., and you can visit, and there are whole portions of the Bible redacted. And all of us are thinking, my goodness, that heresy. The sad part is, and speaking from a man who did this for years, the sad part is there are many a Christian who are living according to a slave Bible. They choose this part, but they don't like that part. They choose this part. I don't really like that part. I did it for years of my life. You know, one of the things that I think sets my story aside from many other stories of men and women who've been rescued out of drug addiction, so many men and women, they try the secular route. They'll try the methadone and the suboxone and the 12-step and the in and, uh, intensive outpatient and finally come to Christ and get set free. One of the things that was unique about my story is Pastor Ken was my neighbor when I was in sixth grade. Uh, I, I got plugged into church in middle school. I was professing Christ all through my high school years. I, you know, the first time I began to really dabble in drugs and alcohol and knew I was in trouble, I went to a Christian discipleship program. So I had this uh, whole season of my teenage years and most of my 20s until I you know, truly surrendered my life at 27 in a jail cell of, of doing exactly what I'm talking about tonight. I lived my life according to the redacted Bible. And, and what danger, what compromise, and, and what complacency, and, and the turmoil that, it, you know, not just my own life, but how many other people in my wake of destruction did I cause harm to? And I believe as we're looking here at David, I mean, there's such a shining resume in this man's life, and yet the Bible doesn't refrain from giving us this. And when we look at this, do you guys understand the direction of where this is going to go and how what happens here in 2 Samuel chapter 11? You guys know it is the grandfather of Bathsheba that is Ahithophel. Ahithophel is the one who is going to, decades from now, lead the coup with Absalom to destroy the kingdom of David, or at least make the attempt to. I mean, so much is going to be sown in this season that is not going to come to fruition for decades later. And I believe there's a wonderful lesson here that God and the Holy Spirit are saying, complacency, compromise, where does it lead? And I think this is a wonderful thing for us to, to look at here. So for you and I in the days that we find ourselves living in, and we see the brutal attacks on the sanctity of human life and gender, the attacks on transgenderism and sexuality and masculinity, we must be reminded that God has enlisted you and I to engage in the fight. We all have a voice. We all have an influence. Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 verse 4, he says, no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. I want to highlight that one word, affairs. Paul says, listen, all of us, we get called, but we can't be entangled with these affairs. At the same time, we got to be honest, life certainly has its affairs and responsibilities, right? Moms, dads, husbands, wives, uh, those who own businesses, those who work for businesses. I mean, we have responsibilities and they're good things. 
The word there, being entangled with affairs, is actually the Greek word pragmateia, so the Bible says it is a pragmatic thing to acknowledge that as fathers and husbands and mothers and wives, sons and daughters, we have many things on our plate. You guys understand what I'm saying? But what is warned against is that we don't become utterly ensnared or entangled in them. That's the warning. It's not that we just free all of our responsibilities. We, we, we had a, a gentleman, we, we planted the church about three and a half years ago, and God has been gracious to us there in Portland, Maine. We've seen God really bless the teaching of his word. We've seen quick growth. We've seen uh, marriages restored in three and a half years. We have a wonderful addiction ministry where people are being set free. And not just set free, I, I'm telling Zach this afternoon, I'm watching God's hand upon young men's lives. I really believe God is raising men up, maybe church planners. I mean, really exciting stuff that we're seeing in Portland, Maine. And one of the things that was, uh, I guess, looking back a bit entertaining when I consider, we're about one year into the church plant, and we had this one gentleman who came to about two services. He was a full-time FedEx driver. And uh, I could just tell he was really zealous, really excited for things of God. And um, he came to the third service, and he said, hey, Pastor Travis, I quit my job. Wow, great. What are you going to do? He goes, what do you mean, what am I going to do? I'm here. I... Chad, what do you mean you're here? Well, I thought you could hire me. We can do this together. <laughs> um, I had to break it to him. That, that was not the plan. We never talked about that. God wasn't calling you to forsake all of your responsibilities and just show up at the church house, Chad. That, I, I, that's not what God was calling you to do. God gives us stewardship. He gives us things to do. That's not sin, of course, but when it becomes entangling our life. Billy Graham said, if the world has your heart, then maybe heaven is not your home. If the world has your heart, maybe heaven's not your home. A very worthwhile question to ask ourselves this evening is, who is the Lord of our lives? Who, who is the Lord of our heart? Who are we serving? What are we serving? As a king and as a soldier, David knew that operational readiness was required. He knew the enemy could attack at any time. And we just have this tragic moment here where it seems as though David it's complacent. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, and I believe it's the same reality for every one of us. Charles Spurgeon said, it has been the lot of all God's people to fight their way to heaven. He says, and Christian, it is your lot as well. It's been the lot of all of our walk with Christ. How much more so in the spring of the year? Isn't that where verse two picks up? The spring of the year. Uh, many in the room have potentially been to Israel. I know Zach and Amanda and the team recently got back. My wife and I got to go to Calvary Chapel Bangor for our first time in February. Uh, we'll never go again in February. Uh, the cost was great, but I understood that they have about a three-week rainy season in February. And so all of us Mainers expecting a Mediterranean vacation had 40-degree weather and freezing rain. I understand why kings go to battle in the spring of the year, when the land begins to dry, when the sun stays up over the hills longer. Consider that reality in light of what Jesus teaches you and I. Remember the Olivet Discourse, the last week of Jesus' ministry in Matthew 24, Matthew 25, and he begins to prophetically talk about the end times. And again, in context of the spring of the year. Remember Jesus in Matthew 24, verse 32, note takers. Jesus says, learn this parable from the fig tree. 
When its branch has already become tender and put forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. In other words, according to the Lord Jesus, springtime, right before summer, as he describes in that portion of Bible, will look like this. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in various places. All of these, he said, will be the beginning of birth pangs. They will deliver you up to tribulation. They will kill you. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. He says many will be offended. It does not sound like our politically correct culture today. Many will be offended. Many will hate one another. Because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. I believe springtime is right now. Summer is right around the corner, according to what the Lord Jesus said. Learn this parable. You look around, signs will be telling you. I believe, likewise, while it is faith that calls you and I to the front line, the vanguard, like Joab, it is the flesh that calls us to the rear guard. Then it happened in verse 2 one evening. David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful to behold. There it is. All of a sudden, the, the scene is just set, right? Complacency, laid back, all the accountabilities out doing what they're supposed to be doing. David just kind of puts his feet up for a little bit not realizing it's springtime, not realizing what's happening. And what do you know? There from the rooftop, he spies this scene. The Irish poet Oscar Wilde once said, I can resist anything except temptation. <laughs> it's so true, isn't it? There's David, a strong man, and yet here he lays. Sexual temptation. I don't believe this is just a topic for men. It's for men, it's for women, especially in the days of the smartphones and the internet. Uh, you need to look at Pew Research Council, Barna Research Group. The statistics are staggering with pornography, with immorality in the church house. This is the topic that's before us here in verse 2. The question should be, what are we doing with sexual temptation? I, I think there's one of two categories. Are we crucifying it or are we being crucified by it? Here's David being crucified I remember several years ago listening to a pastor, uh, Pastor Skip Heitzig. I love Skip Heitzig's ministry and listening to Skip go through the story of David. And I'll never forget the way he said it. Skip Heitzig giving commentary. He said, here lies the Old Testament version of Humpty Dumpty. Humpty David sat on a wall. Humpty David had a great fall. And how tragic, isn't it? When we think about what's going to happen here. And, you know, David, it's not like he was starved for female companionship. By this point in the story, he's been married to six different women. We understand at this point in the story, he's taken many concubines to himself. I mean, this isn't a man who's living the life of some monk or some guy trying to just stay pure. I mean, this is a man who has given himself to marriage, given himself to concubines. So I guess what is really happening here is David falls again into temptation. It simply bears witness to what you and I have all experienced to some degree or another. Sin is never satisfied, isn't it? I mean, all of us, to some degree, we agree to that. To some degree, we can agree with that. Sin is never satisfied. 
The New American Standard Bible records James chapter 1, verse 15 this way. It says, When lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it has run its course, brings forth death. And nowhere in the Bible is this more clearly demonstrated than right here. Look at verse 3. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers, took her. She came to him, and he lay with her. For she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. And the woman conceived. So she sent and told David and said, I am with child. Remember what James said. When lust has conceived on that roof, rooftop, it gives birth to sin. He sent for her. Sin, when it's run its full course, brings forth or produces or births death. And this is a picture of the king, the anointed, the called. The Bible says we're anointed, we're kings, we're priests, we're God's royal church. That we would have no part of the world, that we wouldn't make ourselves connected with the harlot or allow sexual immorality. And yet, here's David fulfilling what is promised to us in James' epistle. Most of us know where this story is going to turn from here. The child will die. We know how the verses will follow. Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, will be killed. The reputation of David, the king, is going to suffer greatly. The respect of his men will suffer as well because of what happens here. The eventual betrayal of Ahithophel and the coup of Absalom all of it is conceived in 2 Samuel 11, verse 1, but David remained at Jerusalem. Isn't it, isn't it so true? Sin has a story. Traces back. I believe it's no different with you and I. Our complacency in the time of war, it's not just lazy. And again, hear my heart. It's not just lazy if we're complacent in the springtime, in the season God has called us to. Way more than that, it's lethal. It's lethal. Who's suffering? I mean, again, so fresh on my mind is this gentleman who's hanging by a thread in the ICU right now. When I came out of jail in 2015 into the discipleship program, that man, Brian, was my school of ministry leader. He was an older brother in the Lord. And I watched the story the last nine years unfold, and I'm so tragic to see it's not just a man hanging by the thread. I watched his wife his two adult children, his two young children, the church family that is truly hurting, so many others. So it's not just complacency, it's not just lazy, it's lethal. We should ask the question, if we look in our own life and we see this area of complacency, we see something being birth of compromise, you know, we, we say, who else would be suffering because of our lack of service to the Lord? If we find ourselves on the rear guard, not the vanguard tonight, we're thinking, Man, who else may be in danger because of this complacency? Is it our children? Uh, is it our grandchildren? Is it our spouse? How about our coworkers? H how about those lost human souls whom God has put in our sphere, that our influence and our witness and our testimony, that God would ordain you and I before the foundations of the earth, that we would be the vessel to bring them the witness of Christ, but because of complacency, are they in danger of eternal damnation? You know, it is a worthy subject to consider this evening. 
As we begin to close, I, I, I want to just break down simply what I believe could be three categories of, of the church, the church at large, me, you, brothers and sisters all over the world. But the church at large, those who are familiar with God's word, those who make professions of Christ. And I, I look at this story of David, I consider the military terminology, I consider the fact that it was wartime and David the king is sitting back in the rear guard, not at the front where he should be. In closing, I dare say there are three categories of people who would be represented either here or listening online. Three categories of people. This is where we're going to close. Number one, there are the servants of the vanguard. So grateful for that. That's why I love Wednesday midweek services at our church. I know this is the, this is the core on Wednesday nights at Calvary Chapel, Greater Portland. The, those are the people who are uh, hungry for God's word, hungry to do God's will, uh, servants, making proper priorities in their life, making sacrifices, those who are walking in purity, being discipled, making disciples, certainly vast majority, I'm confident here tonight. Those who are on the front line. I, I believe God would commend us and encourage us. Paul says in Galatians 6, let us not grow weary in well-doing. For in such a season, we will reap a harvest if we don't lose heart. If, if nothing more, I hope my 40 minutes with you all this evening, if that's you, that you would be encouraged, acknowledging that we are in the springtime. No time for apathy or complacency. There are people who truly are affected by our ministry, our family, our friends, our coworkers, the church family and the, the vitality of this church is a part of every one of the individuals here. We all play a part. The second category I suspect that could be present would be what I'd call in military terms the draft dodgers. God has been calling you to surrender your life and your will to him, and you have flat out refused. Probably not on a Wednesday night, but maybe. A draft dodger. Uh, you know, it was the religious crowd that crucified Christ. It was the religious crowd that was the constant thorn in the New Testament church. You go through the book of Acts, you go through the epistles. You know, we planned the church in Portland. I expected the, the kind of liberal, um, forgive my terminology, the, 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 the liberal, lesbian, kind of woke, progressive culture that we came and planted a church in. They haven't been the ones that have been divisive or destructive. It's the religious crowd that we've had to be on guard for in three years. It's been really sobering. Then you go through the book of Acts, you're like, ah, it's those religious Jews. Those are the ones who are causing all the, the, the division. They're religious people, those who really aren't born again. They're not really sold out. They're not really surrendered to Christ. And if you know that you have been dodging the draft of God's call into service, into the enlistment, certainly God would call you today because he's long-suffering toward us and not willing that any would perish, that we would come to repentance, that we would enlist, we'd tap out. Charles Spurgeon said, your damnation is your own election not God's. Isn't that powerful? It's the third category, brothers and sisters, that I believe is the most troubling. It's a peculiar and no doubt a problematic individual within our armed services. I served one year in the Marine Corps before I was kicked out for drugs years ago. I served one year in the Marine Corps Infantry. I just finished light armor vehicle school after finishing 0311 school. I spent three months in separation platoon trying to stay in because of the seriousness of my overdose and the drugs, I was, I was kicked out. And in that season of SAC company, student administration company, that season of being separated back in 2009, I was a 22-year-old young man. 
you know, my mom's and, and my mom and dad back home are scraping off the, my son's a Marine bumper sticker. And, uh, you know, I mean, heartbreaking. You're, no one wants to answer the questions. Like, how, why is Travis getting out so soon? Heartbreaking. I, from the youngest age, I wanted to be in the military. Complacency, compromise. And so I'm, I'm facing separation. And in that season, being at Camp Pendleton, all the other Marines who were in trouble of some sort joined SAC Company. So you can imagine the personalities. Most of these guys were getting kicked out to some degree or court-martialed. Private first class Fritz. That's all I knew him as. I don't know his first name, so if he's watching tonight, forgive me. Private first class Fritz was a peculiar and a problematic individual. He is what the military refers to as a conscientious objector. You guys know the term? A soldier who was unwilling to follow orders in which he enlisted. It's a very peculiar group. Is someone here today of that same sort? You know, life surrendered at some point to Christ, but you know that currently he is not the Lord of your life and you know you're not obeying him. The military says that's a conscientious objector. You are choosing to object to the one whom you enlisted to. Enlisted in the service but entangled in sin, maybe just entangled in self. You find yourself in the rear with the gear, so to speak. That's not where God wants you. That's not where God wants me. That's not where God calls us. Can't we all agree, brothers and sisters? Especially in the springtime of the year. You guys agree the world's gone nuts, right? We all agree with that? The world's not getting any better. We can all agree with that? Okay, this is what God's word says, right? So, in the last days, lawlessness will abound, iniquity will grow, uh, the hearts of many will grow cold. I mean, you know, all that Jesus prophesies of. You know, we're in desperate need of a revival, I agree, but the world is, is going in a direction. God is, is reaping up wrath, it tells in the book of Revelation. He's going to pour out. So we're looking around the world right now, and we're thinking, okay, there's no time to be lazy spiritually, no time to be kicked back. God would call you and I to repentance. He says again, Paul writes to Timothy, you therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of his life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Now is the time that we go out to battle. Only the second time I'm saying this as a preacher, in closing, I will say, if you look back at verse three, it says, so David sent and inquired about the woman Notice, and someone said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? You know, I've taught this portion of Bible before. That stood out to me on the plane on the way down here. And someone said, isn't that unique? I mean, no name given. Who said it? Who's the one that kind of whispered in David's ear? Hey, what are you doing? I believe there was a faithful witness present in David's moment of vulnerability that day. Very peculiar how it stands out. In fact, you notice, I'm reading out of the New King James, and that word someone, in most of our Bibles, is italicized, which simply means the translators added it. It wasn't in the original Hebrew. They're trying to make it add to what they believe the context to be. But because it's italicized, it suggests that the witness was actually within David. Isn't that unique? So there was a still small voice warning and convicting the man of God. David, isn't this Bathsheba? She's married. What are you doing? Isn't that unique? 
May you and I also be sensitive to the Spirit's warning of complacency in our own lives. Unlike David here in 2 Samuel 11, let us not ignore that silent killer of complacency. Can we receive that tonight from the Holy Spirit together? Will you guys pray with me? Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, I, I certainly, I'm so challenged by what it is that's before us. Lord, David, this hero of the Old Testament, a man, Lord, that we greatly esteem, the scriptures greatly esteem. And yet, Lord, we have this unedited story, this narrative of just a few verses, the, the direction that would ensue, the destruction, the pain. Lord, life would be lost. Lord, I pray for the church family here in Calvary Chapel, Miami. I pray for every individual, myself included, that, Lord, we'd allow the Spirit of God to search us tonight, Lord, that we would be open and willing to consider where do we stand, Lord. I pray for those who are servants and truly being discipled on the front lines, that, Lord, tonight there would be a great encouragement. Lord, I pray for the weekend ahead, all those who are serving and praying and, and allowing this young adults conference to take place. Lord, bless them, I pray. Use them. Overflow their lives with your spirit. Lord, if there's a draft dodger here tonight who has truly just resisted you, Lord, I pray the Spirit of God would bring down and soften the walls around that heart. And Lord, for that third category, Lord, someone who's enlisted, but Lord, they are in disobedience to you. Lord, I pray likewise, would you shine the light of your Spirit upon that area and Lord, give them repentance. Bless us in our song and in our fellowship tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, grace and peace to you all, Calvary Chapel.